0: You're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff.
1: And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about how one of the earliest microwaves was for bringing hamsters back to life and why art is more moving when you see it in a museum. We'll also answer a listener question about whether humans are still
0: evolving. Let's satisfy some curiosity. If you have a microwave, you probably use it to heat up your food. So it might surprise you to learn that one of the first microwaves was not built for that purpose. Instead, its job was to reanimate frozen hamsters. And this might sound cruel, but scientists in the 1940s were doing this for a really good reason. They wanted to know if there was a practical way to freeze and reanimate living tissue. If this technology were achievable, it would have huge implications for procedures like organ transplants. The scientists started with hamsters. They would take hamsters, freeze them, and then experiment with ways to bring them back to life. The problem was that all the ways the scientists were heating the hamster sickles were either too slow or too burned. Needless to say, the original experiments fell short of what the researchers were hoping they would achieve. Enter James Lovelock, a fascinating British scientist who was instrumental in multiple non-microwave-related discoveries and innovations. It was the early 1950s when Lovelock saw his colleagues struggling, and he suggested they use a process called diathermy. Diathermy is the process of using an electric current to generate heat. It had been used as a form of muscle therapy since the 1800s, and it was old technology at this point. Lovelock purchased a small electric generator and plugged it into two devices called magnetrons, which take an electric current and convert it into microwave radiation. And then he built a small cage just big enough to contain a hamster and hold the magnetrons. The scientists placed a frozen hamster in the contraption, turned it on, and ta da! The thing actually worked! One moment, the hamster was frozen nearly solid, and the next, it was alive and kicking. More importantly, this contraption repeatedly and reliably revived the animals without causing any apparent harm to them. It was a huge breakthrough for the field of cryobiology, but the technology never scaled up to the size of human organs. As it turns out, this technique only works on small animals like rodents— Not because you can't heat larger animals, but because it takes too long to freeze them in the first place. Today, the technology lives on in our kitchens, where it does a great job at reheating leftovers and frozen burritos. That's a long way from its origins in rodent necromancy.
1: We got a listener question from Jonathan, who writes, My friends and I have a rolling debate. Are humans still evolving? What was different about us 20,000 years ago? And what will be different about humans in 20,000 years from now? Help us get smarter in just a few minutes. There are four exclamation points at the end of that, which I really appreciate. I'll do my best, Jonathan. The thing about evolution is that it's really hard to see it happening in the moment. Individuals don't evolve. Evolution only happens over many generations. That said, humans absolutely have evolved in the last 20,000 years and will most likely continue evolving over the next 20,000 years. You know, if we make it that far. One of the most famous examples of recent human evolution is our ability to drink milk into adulthood. We covered this last October, but in short, most mammals stop producing the enzyme they need to digest milk after they're weaned. A recent study found that sometime around 3,000 years ago, the genetic switch that turns off that enzyme broke in a group of Bronze Age farmers in Europe. This genetic mutation spread throughout the population in just a few thousand years, which is a blink of an eye in evolutionary terms. Those farmers were drinking milk from their animals long before they could comfortably digest it, and that probably helped that mutation spread quickly throughout the population. That is, the ability to digest milk was a survival advantage in a place where vitamin D from sunlight was hard to come by. Similar things have happened in specific populations all over the world. The Bajau, a group of free diving nomads in Southwest Asia, have evolved genes for higher oxygen capacity, which helps them take longer dives. Populations in Chile, Siberia have evolved genes that help them adapt to the cold. And mountain-dwelling Tibetans evolved genes to better survive in a low-oxygen environment. And scientists say they did it in less than 3,000 years. But we are definitely changing human evolution. Natural selection selects for the genes that help us survive to reproduce. But modern medicine helps to keep us alive when our genes might not. But natural selection is only one part of evolution. Every new generation comes with variations and mutations in their DNA. And because those changes don't make or break our survival anymore, something weird might be happening. Modern medicine might be leading to more genetic diversity. Still, in evolutionary terms, modern medicine is brand new. Only time will tell how we'll evolve in the next 20,000 years. Thanks for your question, Jonathan. If you have a question, send a voice recording or an email to curiosity at discovery.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-596-5208.
0: Thanks to the internet, you can peruse the art collection of the Louvre or the Met or the Art Institute of Chicago without leaving your house. But will you appreciate it as much? New research suggests you won't. Recently, a group of researchers from the University of Vienna invited 137 psychology students to view and rate 27 works of art on display at Vienna's Musa Museum. The researchers divided the students into three groups. Group one looked at the artwork online, and then one week later did the same exercise by actually visiting the museum. Group two did the same thing, but in reverse— They went to the museum first and attended the virtual exhibit second. The third group didn't go to the museum at all. Instead, they just did two virtual visits one week apart. After viewing the art, the students gave each piece a rating on five metrics, including how much they liked it and how it made them feel. In general, students rated the art they saw in the museum as more moving, interesting, and likable than the art they saw on the computer screen. Interestingly, the group that saw the art in the museum first rated art in the virtual exhibit even lower than the students who experienced the art on a screen first. What's really surprising is how well they remembered it. A memory test after the first art viewing showed that the students remembered the art pieces they saw in the museum better than the ones they saw on the screen. They also had a better memory of the other pieces nearby almost as if they were naturally using the museum space as a memory device. This research solves a long-standing debate between an art theory called formalism and modern psychology research. Formalism says that art appreciation comes down solely to the piece itself, but a theory in psychology research called situated cognition begs to differ. That theory basically says that environment is very important when it comes to how we learn and remember. This study puts a point in the situated cognition column. And that shouldn't be too surprising. I mean, museums are purposeful buildings designed to display art. They give art context and space, which are things a virtual exhibit can't do. And that context matters. So while viewing art virtually can be an enjoyable experience, if you can, go to the museum to let the art really move you. Before we recap what we learned today, Ashley, what are we learning next week on Curiosity Daily?
1: Well, next week you'll learn about that time the U.S. tried to adopt the metric system but was stopped by pesky pirates. Seriously. You'll also learn a bunch of things we just learned about the interior of Mars, why people usually misremember where they were on a certain date, how black holes can show us multiple versions of the same thing and more. Okay, so now let's recap what we learned today, starting with the fact that one of the earliest microwaves was invented to reanimate frozen hamsters. Scientists were trying to find a way to do this in the hope that it could be used for organ transplants and other life-saving purposes. And when British scientist James Lovelock applied microwave radiation to these frozen hamsters, they almost miraculously came back to life. Unfortunately, the freezing process didn't scale up, which is why we don't have astronauts in cryosleep on their way to another galaxy right now. Yet. Yet.
0: We also learned that humans are still evolving. We have lots of examples of genetic adaptations in our species over the last few thousand years, including the ability to digest milk. Certain populations have also gained adaptations that help them survive in extreme environments, like the free diving Bajau groups in Chile, Siberia, and people in the low oxygen altitudes of Tibet. Ashley has also somehow evolved to tolerate me every week for years. It's extraordinary. Are you sure individual humans can't evolve? I think I think this must be cognitive flexibility. Ah, <laughs>
1: there you go. And we learned that art is more moving when you see it in a museum. A study that had students look at art online and in a Vienna museum found that people who went to the museum found the art more moving, interesting, and likable, and were even better at remembering the pieces than people who saw it online. This shows that context matters. And considering how much effort museums put into how they display their art, that shouldn't be too surprising.
0: What's the coolest piece of art you've ever seen?
1: Like, I've seen the Mona Lisa, but it, it doesn't really hold up once you see Like, there's so much hype, and then you go and you're like, oh. Also, there are just always tons of people crowded around it, so you can't even really get that close to it. Oh, I saw the Monet exhibit at the Art Institute of Chicago. And that was super cool. Honestly, my favorite part of this exhibit, it's a really, really large exhibit. And you walk through this really long hallway and you see kind of every era of his life and what he was painting at different times. And they have they even tell you little snippets of his life like this is when he got married. And, you know, this is all all these different times. And my favorite thing was kind of tucked away in this little dark corner. They had caricatures that he had drawn when he was a teenager on the streets of France, just trying to make a quick buck and like people would just pay him to draw their caricature. And it's just awesome. It's like Monet and he, it's just so human. It's so just like down to earth. I love it. I love that stuff. Like a lot.
0: Yeah. I saw an Andy Warhol exhibit at the art Institute and I did not think I would like it. And I did not love it, but (laughs) it gave me a greater appreciation for Andy Warhol seeing the, the range of stuff, right? Like there were sketches and there were, there's other things other than the, just like, oh, it's, you know, the, the colorful Marilyn Monroe that a million people have seen is zillion, kajillion times and all the camel soup cans, all that kind of stuff. I think that that helps a lot too, you know, versus like looking at a painting surrounded by banner ads on a website. <laughs> right. It's like a little, right, it's a little different.
1: I mean, I'm going to get a little deep here, but I think this is the reason that, AI art and music is not going to put artists out of a job because I think context and history and where the art came from and who made it are all really important parts of the pieces that we consume. And when you go to a museum and you can read the little description and you kind of can see the 3D imprint of the paint It means so much more than just seeing it online. And I think if we have AI just like making art, that'll be useful for some things. It'll be useful to have like a cheap piece of art on a hotel wall. But I don't think we're just going to be like, oh, well, I no longer want to see stuff created by humans. Those are my two cents. I love that. I hope I'm right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and The necessity for humans to exist and create things does seem like a pretty important thing. I, too, hope that you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. We can only hope. Good talk. Today's writers were Cameron Duke and Ashley Hamer, who's also our managing editor.
1: Our producer and
0: audio editor is Cody Goss. Have a great weekend. Go to the museum if you can. Pro tip, if they have any works by Van Gogh, do it. He's my favorite. Then join us again Monday to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.